This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Gonzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Gonzano's Baldface Truth. We all thought that Terry Stotts and Damian Lillard had a great relationship. And in fact, when Damian Lillard was traded to the Milwaukee Bucks, a lot of people said, oh, Terry Stotts must have played a role in that. Must have told the Bucks what they were getting. Well, Terry Stotts has now stepped down as an assistant coach with the Milwaukee Bucks. He had sat out two seasons following his departure from the Trailblazers, joined the staff in the spring, but then ultimately decided in recent days that he wasn't going to continue. The Bucks aren't talking about it. Uh, Adrian Griffin, the coach, head coach, would not comment. He said the uh, move was Terry Stott's decision. He left it at that. Said he was caught off guard by it, but he said uh, you support him. Terry Stott spent nine years with the Trailblazers. Took the Blazers to eight straight trips to the Western Conference playoffs. Departed in 2021 when he was thrown under the bus by Neil Olshay, Blazers general manager at the time. And I and I kept wondering at the time. And and you probably, you might have thought this too that nothing was happening with the Trailblazers during that era. Without the blessing of Damian Lillard, it just, it wasn't happening unless Dame signed off on it. And so I'm left kind of thinking, did Terry Stotts have bad feelings about what happened with Damian Lillard at the end? Did, uh, did, uh, you know, did, was he, was he upset that Lillard had not backed him when Neil Olshay made a move on him and tried to point the finger, throw him under the bus, make him the scapegoat. Remember what Olshay said? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, it was done collaboratively uh, along with Terry and his agent, Warren Legary. Um, They just kind of felt like Terry had done as much as he could do. And, you know, the timing was such that, you know, we, we collaborated with them to figure out what the best way, if, if we made the decision, what way would it most best position Terry for one of the potential openings around the league. And they felt like doing it immediately would give him the best opportunity to enter the marketplace and potentially find a, uh, another franchise. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why Neil Olshay and I never really got along. I mean, he, he, first of all, tries to point out like this was a decision that was made collaboratively as if the entire organization is making this decision. We all know that it was the general manager who was, operating with a lot of autonomy at the time and he, you know and Neil O'Shea had the ear of Damian Lillard and if Lillard did not want this move to happen it wouldn't have happened and I have I, I can't help but think today as Terry Stotts leaves the Milwaukee Bucks I don't care if Terry comes out and says no no this had nothing to do with it I just I just really enjoyed not having to work for a couple of years and 
getting back into the grind reminded me that, you know, I needed, you know, maybe I'm done as a coach, my heart's not in it, all of that. Uh, I can't help but wonder, though, what role Damian Lillard plays in this drama. Because at the time, you know, Olshay positions this as collaborative decision made with Terry's agent. Did you catch that? With his agent, uh, Warren Legary. You know, the dirty little secret is that Warren Legary is also Neil Olshay's agent. And so it wasn't made collaboratively with Warren Legary. This was Neil Olshay going, hey, I got to make a move on this guy. You're my agent. You're his agent. This is what we need to do. And for a lot of people who knew the name of Warren Legary, uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, figures that was lurking in the background of the Blazers organization over the you know last 15, 18 years, uh, unfortunately, Legary had the ear of Burt Cold and was whispering into his ear and helped get a lot of his clients hired. And it's true that Warren represented a lot of Blazers executives like Tom Penn, like Kevin Pritchard. He had multiple uh, executives, John Nash, Steve Patterson. I mean, there's a real pattern when you look at the Blazers executives that a lot of them were Warren Legary clients. And Warren and I had our battles because, you know, it was he's a necessary evil. I had to deal with him because he's the agent of a lot of Blazers general managers and coaches. But Warren often ended up in the middle of things as the Blazers were making decisions. And so I think it was really interesting to see uh, Neil Olshay fashioned this as a collaborative decision. Um, it, here is uh, Neil Olshay talking about Damian Lillard's role, and listen to how he sort of positioned Lillard's knowledge of his coach getting fired. Tell me if you believe this is how it went down. Here's Neil Olshay. In terms of informing Damian, Damian knew before this went public. I had had discussions through Friday with Terry about what, where he felt we fell short, what we could have done, um, how comfortable he was in the possibility of maybe returning or not returning. Um, I consulted with Jody Allen and Bert Cold. Um, we sat down with my staff to discuss where we were in terms of the coaching impact on the roster and the ceiling that it's created. Um, and once I informed Terry, the first phone call was to Dame prior to be, it being made public so that he would be the first person to know that the decision had been made to make a coaching change. Anybody believe that Damian Lillard wasn't involved in the decision? Not like, hey, he was the first person we called after we made the decision, giving Lillard plausible deniability. But I kind of have to wonder, as Lillard is traded to the Milwaukee Bucks, and I'll bet you wondered too, if you were a Blazer fan, the minute you saw Stotts there, you went, oh, Terry Stotts reunited with Damian Lillard, great offensive coach, a guy who's essentially the offensive coordinator on that staff for the Milwaukee Bucks, a very valuable person, now leaves. Suddenly just says, can't do it. And I can't help but wonder how much of that had to do with the arrival of Damian Lillard and maybe some bad leftover feelings. Like, Stephen, do you believe for a second that Lillard was not involved in the decision for his coach to be to be let go. Uh no, I, I you know, O'Neal Shea, not believable guy. And I feel I firmly believe this, especially in the NBA, that these superstars they have a lot of power when it comes to coaching decisions and player personnel decisions on the team that they're gonna be involved in a lot of these type of situations. So no, I think Dame was, you know, asked, Hey, you know, how's the team reacting to Terry Stotts? How do you feel about Terry Stotts? And he was fine and he signed off on, you know, letting go of him. So it's interesting this whole Buck situation, John. Like, 
No one truly knows exactly what Terry Stott's thought process is, but at the same time, they have a new head coach in Adrian Griffin, a guy who's never been a head coach in the NBA. It would be nice to have that veteran leadership who's been a coach in the NBA, been through some battles to help him along the way. So for him to leave right before the season, I feel like there's got to be something. And whether that is Dame, whether that is Terry Stotts felt like he should be a head coach again and just couldn't do the assistant coach thing again, I think there's there's something there. And there's something that we don't know yet to the story. And I really hope we find out. And I want to hope that it's not Damian Lillard. I want to hope Dame didn't say, you know what, I, we just, I just can't listen to this guy anymore. I listened to him for nine-plus years, whatever it was, and he just doesn't get through to me anymore because that is possible, especially in the NBA. A lot of times these guys will just tune out their coaches after years and years because they're professionals and they need a new voice. And maybe that's a, that's the instance what Dame said when he got there. He said, you know, I, just, I, just, I just can't you know, listen to this guy and take him seriously. But I, I hope that's not it, John, but there's got to be something. We're missing something here, and – Hopefully it comes out what it is. Yeah, and and I my immediate thought was, and I'm just speculate speculating here, but my immediate thought was there's some bad feelings. Lillard obviously, when the decision is made or even proposed to him, and you know I have no doubt he was involved in the decision that ultimately cost Terry Stotts his job. But I do think that Neil Olshay is you know the person who is whispering in Dame's ear, "Hey, we need to make a move." Hey, uh, you know, Terry's done what he can do. It's run its course. Um, you know, it, it, and basically, Neil O'Shea wanted a position that says Terry Stotts was the issue and pivot to a coach that he could control, a young coach in a rebuild in Chauncey Billups, because Neil O'Shea was trying to extend his longevity in Portland. He was, you know, the problem was the roster. We all knew the roster was broken, and Terry Stotts had kind of run his course, you could argue that, but the roster was broken. That was the bigger issue for Terry Stotts in the end. He didn't have the roster to win. And so they end up throwing Terry under the bus, and then he sits out of basketball for two years, and then he decides to come back, and he's going to be an assistant, essentially the offensive coordinator with the Milwaukee Bucks. He's hired in the spring, and then the Milwaukee Bucks go out and trade for the guy who helped usher his firing in Portland along in I have no doubt that publicly, like Terry Stotts and Damian Lillard will probably say, hey, we were we were cool. It you know, there was no hard feelings. It was no nothing personal. I just think both those guys are going to be professional and not want to have this be a thing. But I am left kind of going, if I'm Terry Stotts and I see this move made and I'm coming back after taking two years off, and frankly, I don't need this. Terry Stotts made a bunch of money as the Blazers head coach. He was paid for those years that he was sitting around and off. And now he's just trying to get back into basketball. And, you know, maybe he wants to make another run of it, at it. Maybe he doesn't. But he sees Lillard coming through the door. I have to think he kind of had some bad feelings himself on it. So maybe it is a little bit of Lillard tuning out Terry Stotts and going, I don't want to do this again and talking to the Bucks about it or his agent talking to the Bucks about it. Or maybe it's a little bit of Terry Stotts going, okay, if Dame doesn't show up and come to me and initiate a conversation in which he says, you know, hey, sorry things went si- sideways, you know, I wish it would have been different. I don't know what kind of relationship these guys have away from the from the, from the the basketball court in the practice facility, but it feels to me like, you know, we how many weeks since Lillard show up and training camp started? I mean, just a couple of weeks and Terry Stotts went, nah, no thanks, I'm not going to do it. And the, so time, either, yeah. the, the timing is terrible right like less than a week before the season and your assistant coach is ups and leaves resign like that is not good timing so i there's something there i i think it may be a little bit of both because you're right publicly dame has always been very positive about terry stotts of course yeah said, said he's he didn't wanted- want it to be you know i had a boss tell me one time 
I had an executive editor at the paper tell me, you know, I had a I had an editor I, editor I was working for who wasn't very good. And I went in and talked to the executive editor about it, and they said, hey, let this thing run its course. You don't want it to be you that drives off that person. Just let it run its course. And and I did. And I sat back, and the editor eventually left. And, you know, it, and it wasn't me being – like, Damian Lillard did that, essentially, with Terry Stotts. He let Neil Olshay be the, the bad guy. And Olshay – in the end, throws Terry under the bus. And we all know, like, the Blazers needed to be better defensively. The Blazers, you know, had kind of gotten a little flat, a little stale. Maybe they'd plateaued under Terry. But that had more to do with the roster, don't you think? Yeah, it had to do with the roster. And I also could see this, though. You know, you talk about Terry Stotts. It could be a little bit of him seeing Dame walk in the door and say, you know, I just I can't do it with this guy either. Like, I tried, and he never gave the defensive effort that we wanted him to. Uh, you know, he basically catered his offense around Dame and let him do whatever he want. I know it's I know fans love when Dame shoots those thirty five foot three pointers, but John, I can tell you what, those aren't good shots. Even though he makes them, those aren't great shots uh, in the NBA, and a lot of coaches wouldn't let you shoot those. Terry Stotts let Dame do it because you know what, Damian Lillard ran that offense, he ran the franchise, and you know I get to be a situation where Terry Stotts just doesn't want to be a part of it. I could see that as well. Like, I, I think there's. There's arguments for both sides of this where Dame doesn't want to be with Stotts and Stotts doesn't want to be with Dame, and it all came ahead a week before the season starts. You know, I still think the Bucks should be the favorite in the NBA, but man, yeah, but I, I don't, don't know. you this think this hurts them a little? I mean, I think I loved if they were going to coexist and if Dame was going to buy in and be coachable, and Terry was excited about being there. I love Terry Stotts as the offensive coordinator, so to speak, on an NBA team. He did it with the Mavericks in 2010. They won it all. Yeah. Rick Carlisle swears by him, says he, he was my offensive coordinator. Yeah, that, that Mavericks team was led on offense by Terry Stotts. And, and you look at what the Portland offense did when he was in Portland. I know there's a lot very stagnant, but they were still towards the top 10 in the NBA pretty much every single season. So, yeah, I, I, I think there's got to be some type of thing with Dame. Dame has had some quotes out there, too, where you know he never is like fully excited when he's talking, but he seems almost even more down now than he ever has been. And it seems like maybe he just really is bummed out. He didn't go to Miami. So I, it's a weird situation. I, I think there's a lot of pressure on the Milwaukee Bucks to do things this year, especially on Dame, to get the Bucks going this year. He had a poor preseason game. Not looking at you know, don't look anything into that. But I don't know, man. I there's there's a weird weird vibe around Milwaukee right now that I I kind of hope they figure it out because I want Dame to have a, you know be successful and play with Giannis and be great out there. But there's a part of me that says I got to wait and see if this works. Yeah, I just I, I think it's interesting the timing too. And and you know, I have people still like yesterday on the show I I addressed I think as as plainly as I could the news reports about Lillard's divorce and I read through it and I just the the whole thing makes me sad and I said on yesterday's show I didn't want to deal with this. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to make it a big news story, but I will talk about the fact that I don't want to talk about it. Like I I think that there's an element to every professional athlete or every celebrity's life that is interesting to the rest of us. Like, it, it is really, it is the foundation of documentaries. It is the foundation of reality television. We are interested in keeping up with the Kardashians. We are interested in knowing who Travis Kelsey is dating and how many bathrooms his house has, you know, his new mansion that he's buying. And, you know, there's a fascination we have with celebrity life. I guess what I was saying on yesterday's show, and I, you know, and I guess this is where I divide the line because I am interested in this drama around Terry Stotts and Damian Lillard because I think it matters in a sports sense. It affects the team on the court. 
But Lillard's divorce doesn't do anything for me outside of tell me and remind me that these athletes who are star athletes are are not perfect people. And, you know, there's some messy, ugly stuff that is written in there. I don't know how much of it is he said, she said, and uh, whether or not he, he really was just a guy who was interested in perpetuating his image over really being authentic. And, you know, some of it just makes you want to vomit. But I'm left, when I read that stuff, kind of just feeling sick to my stomach for the kids that are involved. And, and I'm left feeling like I don't really think that that stuff affects Trailblazers, Inc., and I don't think it affects the Milwaukee Bucks or Lillard really on the court until he says otherwise. Like, if he comes out and he's in a bad funk to start the year and he says, hey, my divorce proceeding is weighing on my head and here's what's going on, then that's a different story. But this Terry Stotts stuff is interesting to me. And I and I know that, like, I, I said I'm not interested in the stuff away from basketball, but this has to do with the basketball. This is an assistant coach on the team who, after a couple weeks of being reunited with a star player that he coached for, what, nine seasons, eight seasons, he he is uh, essentially going, uh-uh, not a day longer. I- I'll give you your money back. And so either the Milwaukee Bucks came to Terry Stotts at Damian Lillard's behest and said, you can't be you know, in this role. We need you in a different role. And he decided to quit. Or if if Adrian Griffin's being right, like Terry Stotts just said, I, I don't want to do this anymore. And either the reason is Terry just said, I don't have it. I don't have the fire anymore. I'm not looking forward to the travel. I don't know what he's going to say. Um, I will, certainly will reach out to him. Or he is looking at, you know, trying to coexist again with Damian Lillard, and he's just not having it. Like, eh, I don't need it. So I, what's your theory? If you have to, If you have to put your money on one of the theories, which is it, Stephen? Um, I think it's going to be more in the Damian Lillard camp of him not wanting Terry Stotts there. If if I had to place a bet on that, I I know I I feel like would Terry, the Bucks let him do that? Like, yeah, hey, you're the brand new guy. You're- yeah, he's under contract for that. You know, for a long time they just traded Drew Holiday, who was a fan favorite. I think they're gonna try to cater to Dame, especially at the very start, just to see if this works because the Giannis Dame combo on the court should be. Elite, maybe the best combination in all of the NBA. So I feel you feel like you got to give it a chance. You got to cater to Dame at this moment in time. Well, we got to go to Utah next. Utah is playing USC in Los Angeles at the Coliseum on Saturday. The Trojans are a seven-point favorite. Utah looks like they'll be without Cam Rising once again. Josh Newman, KSL, covers the team like nobody else. Is going to be joining us to talk about. The chances that Utah beats USC for a third straight time. Last year, Utah spoiled USC's season. Beat him in the middle of the season. Beat him in the Pac-12 championship game. It's true that the uh, Utes have been playing with one arm tied behind their back. But do they still have USC's number? Josh Newman is coming up next from Salt Lake City. Leave it here. Utah's got USC's number. There's no way around it. And USC fans, I you know, they're, they're all mad at me because I'm picking Utah to win this game. I'm picking Utah to beat USC because part of it is I've just seen Utah do it so often. And, yes, I know Cam Rising, all of that. But I, I just I look at what Utah has done recently in meetings against, uh, uh, against USC, and I 
can't help but think that, you know, Pac-12 championship game, that 43-42 game in Salt Lake City, and then even in 2021, yeah, it's three in a row for Utah. Utah trying to make it four in a row. Josh Newman, he is the best on the beat. You can read his work at ksl.com, and he's joining us now. Um, how you doing, man? John, I'm well. Uh, let me first say I apologize if you hear a small child in the background screaming or, or blabbering. I have my man with me here, so we're just going to have to deal with it, I think. <laughs> yeah, you know, one time I, uh, I had a farmer call in, took a call, and he had a goat in the background, and we just rolled <laughs> with it, man. Just roll with All it. Right, we, do it man. we could do it. Um, it. Hey, so uh, give me an idea. Um, this, this matchup, Utah-USC, there just seems to be something extra in it for Utah all the time. Am I reading that wrong, or do you feel like there's just something extra there when they play USC? No, no, I think that's, you know, I think that's right on. Uh, I essentially wrote that this morning um, on KSL.com that this is not, this is never just your average regular season game. Uh, when Utah plays USC, it feels like something more. It feels like there is something at stake. Uh, <clears throat> it feels like you're in for something, you know, above average. And look, this game on Saturday night at the Coliseum, it doesn't have the hype and it doesn't have the, you know, the big stakes that the two games last year had. But even still, you know, USC with one loss fighting for its college football playoff life, essentially, uh, trying to stay uh, tied atop the Pac-12, there's something at stake there. Um, if Utah can win this game, uh, its season begins to take on a different tone. If they win this game, anything is possible. Now, if you lose this game, that's two conference losses, and you are essentially dead in the water in terms of getting back to the Pac-12 championship game. So, again, not the, not the gigantic stakes of a Pac-12 championship game, but certainly uh, storylines, intrigue, uh, things to pay attention to. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to covering this game. Again, from a media standpoint, from a beat reporter standpoint, this never feels like just a regular game. And you know, and that goes for this particular game on Saturday night. All right, last season they played twice. I was there for both games. I was in Salt Lake City to see that great 43-42 game in mid-October. They meet again in December. Very different game. USC at the beginning of that game looked like they were going to run away with it. And then here came Utah. And Utah wins the game 47-24. What did Utah figure out in that title game? Uh, if you punch USC in the mouth, they'll fold. And that's what happens. Uh, you know, USC in that title game goes up 14-3 pretty immediately. They get to, I think they were at the 4 or the 5 and Clark Phillips had a great pass breakup on Jordan Addison in the end zone. And then at that point, I'm thinking that Lincoln Riley should go for it. Up 14-3, go for it. It's fourth and goal to three. You're stepping on their throat already. Go for it. If you get it, the game's over. They took the field goal. They go up 17-3. And you know, Utah hung in there, hung in there. They leaned on USC you know, early, middle of the third quarter. And by the time you got to the fourth quarter, they broke USC. You know, scored 23 points. Uh, you know, rising to Thomas Yasmin for a 60-yard catch-and-run touchdown. Uh, Quinton Jackson, you know, with a 53-yard touchdown, you know, for, for the icing. So, you know, the, the moral of that game was, yeah, if you hang around and you lean on USC and you win up front, you know, you, you, know, you get a push, you punch them in the mouth, they're going to fold. And 
this is not this is not last year's Utah team, especially on offense. This is not rising and Brand Keithy. Um, they're not going to score 45 points. They're not going to score 47 points, but they're tough, and they're going to you know, and they can win up front. Okay, so for whatever problems, whatever warts this Utah offense has had, I'll tell you what, the most recent showing we have is them running for 317 yards and bludgeoning Cal and Bryson Barnes doing what he's asked to do. He's not rising, okay? Bryson Barnes is being asked to, look, kid, don't turn the ball over, and we need you to make a throw here and there. We're not going to ask you to throw it 35 times. We're going to ask you to throw it like 22 times and you need to make a throw here and there. So um, I don't know. I'm kind of with you. I don't know that I don't know that Utah is going to win this game, but I can't shake the feeling that Utah just has something on USC, and Utah is just built a little bit differently, right? Ready for the physicality, ready for a you know a proverbial war. I'm picking USC to win this game, but there's something about there's something about Utah against USC that I, I just can't shake as this week has gone along. Yeah, and I, and I, you know, USC fans got all over me, and they said, you don't understand USC. If they hadn't lost, then this is the game you pick against them, but because they lost to Notre Dame, you can't pick against them. And I'm like, well, that's just crazy. That's, you know, that's, uh, you know, is, it, what's wrong with this team if that's the mentality of the team? So give me an idea. Um, where are we at with Cam Rising, Brant uh, Keithy? Are they going to medically redshirt or – is there a chance that they come running out of the tunnel like, you know, Golden Joe or Willis Reed? I mean, you tell me. Yeah, I mean, you know, the medical redshirt stuff has kind of picked up steam here this week as we've hit the midway point, and not only have we not seen, like, Ryzen or Keithy, there's not even, like, there's not even a lot of behind-the-scenes optimism that you're going to get either of those guys. Just, you know, they, you know, Keithy especially, you know, you would expect that Keithy would have been back already from, you know, from the knee injury from last September. You know, a setback, a setback, you know, a knee scope to clean things up. It just doesn't sound like he's he's all that close, and Rising doesn't sound like he's all that close either. Now, look, Rising has been, you know, you keep being told that, like, Rising is close, Rising is close, but, you know, then he goes, you know, on Bill Riley's radio show here in Salt Lake City and, you know, gave a, a better indication of what the injury was, right? He didn't just injure his knee in the Rose Bowl. Uh, he blew out his knee. Uh, you know, 10-month recovery, 12-month recovery. So, um, you know, you can't completely rule out Ryzen and Keithy, but with each passing week, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like there's a whole ton of optimism. So then you get into the medical redshirt stuff, and you know, as as you well know, John, you know, the medical redshirt, um, if if they don't play at all, zero snaps, if they do not step on the field and play a snap, they are eligible to get a medical redshirt from the NCAA and come back for a seventh year. Now, Kyle Whittingham on Monday during his normal weekly press conference, you know, left the door open for that and it admitted that, yes, that is on the table, that is a possibility, but that's all we have on this is Whittingham. We don't know if Rising wants to do that. We don't know if Keithy wants to do that. I think this game here Saturday, I mean, look, if you lose this game, and you are at two conference losses, and you are very likely not going back to the Pac-12 championship game, I think that plays a role if these guys would want to come back if they were ready at some point. So there's a lot going on here. Look, age, health, whatever draft stock there may be, NIL money, both of these guys are making a fortune in 
NIL, it would stand to reason that there would be more NIL money to be made in 2024, whether at Utah or somewhere else. Like that's a fair, that's a fair thing. Okay, if they come back for a seventh year, it doesn't necessarily have to be at Utah. So um, I'm not, look, I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what to think right now about this particular topic because there are just so many variables in play here for both of these guys. But I think how this game shakes out Saturday will be at least part of the decision-making process if Utah wins, if Utah loses, and if these guys are ultimately ready to get on the field at some point this season. Now, Utah won the games last year, and you're doing a hell of a job parenting your kid and doing this interview. So I appreciate you doing this. But I'm trying, baby. I'm trying. You're doing well. Like, Utah wins the games last year. And even though Caleb Williams had the you know bleep Utah on his fingernails, Utah got the last laugh. Is there any lingering bad feelings, though, with the Utah players as they look over at, at Caleb Williams? Uh, I don't think so. I don't. I mean, look, at least not publicly. I mean, there hasn't been a whole lot of talk about Caleb Williams at all this week, you know, with the exception of Kyle Whittingham uh, echoing things that he said before about how, how special this kid is. And in 40 years of coaching, whether it be an assistant or as a head coach, Caleb Williams is one of the hardest guys to to scout for and to deal with and to and to bring down. Um, you know, I try to I try to read everything across the Pac-12 landscape. I can tell you right now, there's not a whole lot of Caleb Williams USC talk about last year from the Utah side. And if you like listen to what Caleb Williams has said this week and what Lincoln Riley has said this week, there isn't a whole lot of Utah talk. Now, if we rewind back to Pac-12 Media Day back in July, um, Caleb Williams was. You know, didn't come out and say it, but he made it pretty clear that like this is a game that he has circles. Okay, if you look at how many how many losses the you know does Caleb Williams have in his college career, he has like six losses between Oklahoma and USC. Thirty three percent of that is to Utah. So you you know you can't tell me from Caleb Williams' you know perspective that this is just another game. It's not just another game. It's a team that beat you twice. It's a team that stopped you from going to the college football playoff. So I would expect Caleb Williams to show up up at the Coliseum Saturday night uh, very ready to play uh, and very, very motivated to beat Utah based on what happened last year. All right. Utah doesn't have Cam Rising. It has been injured at, like, you know, 18 different positions. And yet I look up, and they're ranked 14th. They are 5-1. and one. They are still very much in this thing, aside from the loss to Oregon State. They've been pretty good, and they've found a way week to week. What the heck is going on? How are they finding a way? Well, let's just clarify things here. Um, you say they've been very, very good. Um, it's a it's a championship caliber defense to this point, and that is with seventy five percent of the front four either missing either missing significant game time or being out entirely. So the champ so the Excuse me. So the defense has done its job and more. The offense has been abysmal. Um, they cannot throw the ball. Um, I think they've kind of bungled this backup quarterback situation between Bryson Barnes and Nate Johnson. You know, there were points where like Rising was getting all of the number one reps or the vast majority of the number one reps in hopes of like him getting cleared at the end of the week, only to not get cleared. And then, hey, it's Thursday. Nate Johnson, you're starting after, like, not taking all the first-team reps. So, you know, between the quarterback situation, 
the running back room has been pretty devoid of depth. There's been some real injuries there. Okay, you've got uh, Sione Vaki, who's uh, all Pac-12 caliber safety, uh, stepping into the running back role now. He had 158 yards and two touchdowns last week against Cal, so that's a new element. So I think they, you know, maybe they got back to business versus Cal. Again, 317 yards rushing. They got a little healthier. They made a change or two along the offensive line. Uh, Bryson Barnes was, you know, solid. Wasn't all world, but he was solid. So, again, the offense as a whole through six games has been bad. But the most recent thing we've seen is them be pretty good. So if they can get um, if they can get the typical defensive effort, okay, you're not gonna you're not gonna stop Caleb Williams, okay? He's going to do some damage. But if you can stop him from running wild and get your typical defensive effort and get a, I, I would say if you get a comparable offensive effort, okay, where you are running the ball, controlling the clock, and winning up front all night, Utah has a real legitimate chance to walk out of there with a win. That's what I think. Yeah, people ask me, you know, I, I predicted I have Utah scoring 34 in this game. And they said, how can you pick that offense to score 34? And I, and I said, well, it's uh, USC is allowed, they're 113th in the nation in defensive first downs allowed. People move the ball on USC. And if, if Utah can move the ball, running the football particularly against USC, I, I think they could give USC some trouble. Now, I don't know if 34 is enough to win it, but it makes it interesting. 34 is, and like I'm listening to you like speak, and I'm thinking about it. Like 34 feels a little like wishful thinking. Just again, just based on what this Utah offense has looked like on paper in a vacuum, 34 feels like wishful thinking. But this USC defense has been dreadful enough. I understand that they looked better against Notre Dame, no doubt, but they have been dreadful. 34 is a big number. I, I'd be. I would be pretty surprised if Utah gets to 34, and if Utah does get to 34, I think you really finally ultimately have to question, I think you have to question a couple of things. I think you have to question Alex Grinch's tenure as, uh, as USC's defensive coordinator, but more so big picture, more generally, I really think you have to question the toughness of the culture that Lincoln Riley is building and whether or not he can really get this program to where it wants to go. Look, I think, and we had, you know, um, Josh Furlong and I do a, a twice-weekly, uh, yeah, twice-weekly podcast over on KSL.com. We had Luca Evans on today, right? He covers USC for the Orange County Register, and I thought, I thought what Luca said was very, you know, was very good. Luca called this um, an inflection point for USC football, um, what it is, where it wants to go, what it wants to be, what Lincoln Riley is building. If, if, USC, if USC off a loss to Notre Dame, if USC cannot at home beat a Utah team that has almost no offense, that is a major, major, big picture problem for, for, for USC's football program. This is a major inflection point for USC football on Saturday night, I think. So help me with this. Wishful thinking on, you know, I'm looking at Cal and, you know, Utah gets 34 on Cal. How does that not translate in your mind to a, you know, they can score in the 30s on USC? I think that Cal defense is a little better than USC's. Uh, oh, my God. I, maybe it's just a name thing. Like, am I, 
am I sitting here thinking like, oh, you're USC, like you shouldn't be giving up 34 points? I know. I Is know. They shouldn't doing? be. Yeah. Yep. Like, they shouldn't. What? But yeah. statistically, Cal defense, I, you know, I was looking at it today and I was like, how many points is Utah going to score? Now, granted, I saw Utah get seven against Oregon State, so it's in my head. Like, you know, you're right. Everything you're saying is in my head. But I'm going, can they do what everybody else is doing? You know, Arizona State got 28 on them. Can they get 34 on them? I don't know. And, and I don't know. What, what do you expect Utah will get out of the quarterback on Saturday? And I'll let you go after this. What, what will they get at the, out of that position? One more time, John. Sorry. What, what will Utah get out of the quarterback position on Saturday? Oh, um, you know what? I think they're going to get something, and I've really thought this through, and, like, I watched the Cal game back, and I watched Bryson Barnes, and, like, Bryson Barnes, um, we know what he is, right? Look, he's not rising, and he's not perfect, and he's a little limited in things that he can do. But against Cal, what Andy Ludwig, the offensive coordinator, was asking Bryson Barnes to do was fine. You know, again, make a throw here and there, protect the ball, don't turn it over. And for the first time, he let Barnes go down the field once or twice. And he hit on, on, on uh, I think, one of those bombs, right? He hit one deep down the field uh, to uh, near McLean in the second half. So if, if, if Ludwig has a similar plan and he's keeping Barnes, like, in a comfortable position and if, he, if the running backs are doing their job, and they're running the ball, and you're getting four, five, six a clip from DeQuindon Jackson, and you're not putting Barnes in a situation where he has to throw it 40 times, and he has to throw for 250 yards. That's not who Bryson Barnes is. If you put Barnes in a similar position to Cal and just make him comfortable, I think he's going to be fine. I think they're going to get, yeah, you know what? As the week has gone on, I've talked myself into, I think they're going to get a solid, solid game from Bryson Barnes, just like they, just like they did against Cal. And if you're getting a solid game from Barnes, that means that the rush, you know, like the rushing attack is doing yeah. its job. And if all those things are happening, Utah's going to be in this game. Not saying that they're going to win, but they're going to be in this game. Josh Newman, I, hey, I'll see you in a couple weeks when Oregon visits Salt Lake City. I appreciate you popping on to, with us and uh, take care of that kid. All right, John. Appreciate you. All right. There he is, Josh Newman. Steven, I'm picking the Utes to upset USC. I don't believe in the Trojans. And you know, maybe I've been watching too much of The Wire and Omar coming down the street with a shotgun and whistling uh, Farmer in the Dell. Uh, you know, it, 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 until I see Utah beat by USC, I will pick Utah every time in that game. One of the best scenes in TV history, by the way, right there. Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to pick Utah to win outright. I think this game is close. I'm a, I think I'm going to go with Utah on the points, but I think USC gets the win Caleb Williams, I don't expect him to have as bad a game as he did against Notre Dame. I, I think that was just a really off day for him. It was bad weather. I think Caleb bounces back a little bit and USC gets the win. But you're, I, you're not wrong for thinking we'll that. Yeah, you're not wrong because we've seen USC's defense be really bad this season. So if Utah can score them, I think that says a lot about USC. I've got some thoughts on Oregon State and Jonathan Smith. Uh, can the Beavers keep him in the fold? I have some uh, ideas about that. Plus, Punch and Audio coming up top of the hour. Oregon State is on a bye week this week, and I know the assistant coaches are out recruiting, and Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State coach, is, he's out recruiting, and they're doing what coaches do on a bye week, right? They're not locked in with an opponent. They're not preparing for a game. Nobody's talking about Reeser Stadium being the setting for a college football game on Saturday, but I'm here to tell you, 
that I hope there's some real activity going on in Corvallis as it pertains to the football program, and I hope that this week has been a very busy week for Scott Barnes and his athletic department. Um, you know, it was last December that Oregon State was celebrating uh, a 10-win football season, a Las Vegas Bowl victory over Florida. Certainly they won the Civil War game. It was a real breakthrough moment for Jonathan Smith in the football program. And, and, and it was mid-December that Oregon State announced that Jonathan Smith was being extended. His contract was extended six years, about $30.5 million, about $5 million in change uh, per year for Jonathan Smith. And it was a well-deserved pat on the back, a bump in salary, and it was the absolute right thing for Oregon State to do because you've got to, A, reward your coaches who have proven and, and given you proof of performance, and B, you need to keep uh, the other programs that might be sniffing around your head coach away. And, and and Jonathan Smith's a little different maybe than Dan Lanning, and, and maybe he's different than Lincoln Riley in that Jonathan Smith played his football at Oregon State. So there's a connection there that gives you an additional advantage. So I'm not saying you need to throw the bank at Jonathan Smith and and overpay for him and get overextended. But Oregon State is at a pivotal time with the Pac-2 slash Pac-12 drama going on in the background, litigation, uncertainty, and clearly I'm being told that the the, the Oregon State and Washington State contingent wants to be able to tell their athletes in front of the December 4th transfer portal window, first window of the transfer period opens on Monday, December 4th, 30-day window, but Oregon State wants to be able to tell its athletes what is going on in front of that window. Wants them to know where they're going to be playing next season, wants them to know, you know who the schedule is going to include, and I think part of that is that they're going to want to be able to tell the athletes that Jonathan Smith is part of the program. Now, I'm not saying Michigan State or Northwestern or some other vacancy that comes open isn't going to be bantering about, you know, Jonathan Smith's on a short list or somebody they may want to talk about. That comes with success. But what Oregon State can control is how secure Jonathan Smith feels, how glued he is to the program. And I know that six years and $30 million was a big move last December for Oregon State. But the calculus has changed. This is a different equation now. And Dan Lanning has seven years and $45 million, okay? So you're talking about, you know, Oregon State maybe needing to bump up here with Jonathan Smith and do a very unusual thing and offer him a second extension within a calendar year. And I think that extension should come sooner rather than later, given the December 4th window and the uncertainty and clearly a bunch of talented players at Oregon State that are going to be uh, approached by other schools, other NIL collectives, and you know people are going to try to negatively recruit Oregon State. Now, what can Oregon State do? Well, it can control where it's going to play next season. It can give the players the schedule and say, here's who we're going to play. We're going to come out. We're going to have a scheduling partnership with the Mountain West Conference, for example. And here's some non-conference games that we've added. And we're going to play a, uh, a competitive schedule. And we're going to try to uh, be ranked in the top 15 again. And we're going to try to make a run at getting one of the college football playoff berths. And this is where we're going to live in 2024. They can do all that. But beyond that, I'm looking at Jonathan Smith's contract this year. And he's got a $3 million buyout which is low by college, major college football standards. 
You want that buyout to be higher. You uh, are, of course, okay with that buyout over time, uh, reducing. But I would, uh, I would be really motivated right now if I were Oregon State to give Jonathan Smith more security, more money, and leverage a bigger buyout, especially in 2024 and 2025. Bump that buyout up to seven to ten million dollars, like Oregon did with Dan Lanning. Oregon was looking clearly at its Big Ten future and going, "We need this guy here. We want him to be part of that bridge into the Big Ten conference." And so Oregon proactively gave Dan Lanning a raise, gave him an extension, raised his buyout significantly to ensure that he was going to be part of the program. Oregon State's got to do the same thing. Oregon State has to step up. And, yes, I know they're busy. I know that they're meeting from 8 a.m. in the morning to 5 p.m. They're meeting with the president. They're meeting with consultants. They're talking with the PR people. They're trying to put together schedules and figure out what they're going to do. But in between that, amid that, they've got to recognize that Jonathan Smith is the glue of the Oregon State program. He is the most important person involved in Oregon State's bridge to the future. He's the football coach that has you know, resurrected the program, took it over from a coach who had quit midseason, and now is focused on not only being bowl eligible, bowl eligible for the earliest time in the history of Oregon State. They're already at six wins. But Jonathan Smith is back to 500. He's 32 and 32 as a head coach after losing games in year one and inheriting a roster that was a mess. Reward the guy, ensure your future, send a message to current players on the roster that he's going to be there. This is a no-brainer. I know it's a bye week, but it shouldn't be an off week for Oregon State. I always say on this show that the show's never as good or as bad as it seems or as people will tell you. But I thought on last Saturday that things probably were as bad for Oregon as people were telling Dan Lanning. He made some questionable decisions. And by questionable, I will say the fact that he went for it on fourth down three times and didn't get it three times, that's what made it questionable. All right, It was the result, if we're being real, because anybody out there, if they're being honest with themselves, if Lanning gets any of those first downs, Oregon wins the game. It's a very different story all week long. But that's that's the job. That's what that's what the money's for, so to speak, uh, with, with Dan Lanning and, and every football coach in America who's faced with making these huge decisions on game day. Dan Lanning had a bad week. He had a bad week. He missed. His team lost. His team outgained Washington. It outfirst downed Washington. It ran more plays than Washington, and it somehow lost the football game against Washington on Saturday. So it was a bad week for Dan Lanning. And I always think about coaches being judged on wins and losses, overall record. Nobody goes back when they cite the record for Bear Bryant or Nick Saban or Mario Cristobal or Mark Helfrich or Chip Kelly or Willie Taggart or Dan Lanning. Nobody goes back and says, well, let's look at who they played. No, they just give the record, right? We just say, here's what his record is. Uh, And that's how we judge coaches. But there is something going on with Dan Landing in the background that's worth paying attention to. You know, he's had some good wins. Beat UCLA last year, beat BYU last season, won the Holiday Bowl last season. But he's not in this to win the Holiday Bowl. He's in this to win it all. 
and he went 0 for last season in the two rivalry games, 0 for 2. Got beat this year at Husky Stadium, 0 for 1 this year. And the narrative being crafted nationally is, ooh, Dan Lanning can't win the big games. I'm not ready to go there yet, but he's got some big opportunities on the horizon this season. Not this week against Washington State, but on the horizon this season that we need to pay attention to. In two weeks, Oregon's going to Utah. Rice-Eccles Stadium, tough place to play. It could conceivably be a one-loss Utah team coming off a victory against USC or maybe a two-loss Utah team, but it's an important game for Oregon. It's the kind of game Dan Lanning needs to win. November 11th, USC will come to Autzen Stadium. A lot of eyeballs on that game. You better believe that national TV is going to grab that one, going to want to be all around it with Caleb Williams coming to Eugene. That's another game that Dan Lanning needs to win. But if we're being real, to erase, so to speak, the ghosts of uh, foot, college football past, what Dan Lanning ultimately needs is come November 24th at Autzen Stadium, he's got to beat Oregon State. There's no way around that. This season can be successful in all kinds of ways, but not without him beating Oregon State at the end of the rainbow. It could be the gateway to getting back to the Pac-12 championship game. It will certainly be for the, uh, you know, so to speak, state championship in the state of Oregon. And it ultimately will be another rivalry game, the fourth of Dan Lanning's coaching career, and he's 0 for 3 in those rivalry games. He's got to beat Oregon State on November 24th. I have that one circled on the calendar. It's going to be a fantastic game. There's going to be a lot of emotion. Oregon State's going to come to play. But Dan Lanning has to win that game, not just because, hey, it, it is potentially a stepping stone into the uh, – conference championship and a trip to Vegas he's got to win it to put the uh, to put the naysayers so to speak to sleep and he's got to win it to quiet quiet the criticism it's an important game for Dan Lanning and and we've seen coaches like Ryan Day at Ohio State struggling with Michigan and you've seen coaches you know you can go back and say Mike Leach struggled to beat Washington uh, you know he won all those games but he couldn't win the Apple Cup with any consistency it has had his number Dan Lanning's not graduated to that stratosphere yet of criticism. But if he doesn't get Oregon State on November 24th, uh, I, I think that that chorus will pick up. You can lose one, you can lose two, you can lose three with some questionable field goals. But you lose that fourth one and people will start to talk. Now, that brings pressure. And I'm sure Dan Lanning will say, hey, pressure's part of the gig. But yeah, he's got to beat Washington State. His team's got to beat Washington State on Saturday. Got to go to Utah and win. There's a game with Cal after that. Then USC's coming to town. Then Arizona State. But the one that jumps out at me, for being real, is going to be that rivalry game with all kinds of emotion and bad feelings on the Oregon State side. And he, what Dan Lanning cannot have is a repeat of last season where Oregon State ran the ball down Oregon's throat and won the game and danced all over the field. That can't happen. Look out for that. Oregon's got to defend not only week to week, but it's got to win the big games. And that's got to start this season. And it, it's got to start with, you know, that possible gateway game to the Pac-12 championship. Because I don't know about you. When I saw Oregon lose to Washington, I walked off the field after the game. I looked around. I saw players at Washington. They were crying. I saw players for Oregon who had tears in their eyes. They were leaving the field. And I said out loud to myself, I said, Rematch in Vegas, because I really do think those are the two best teams right now. 
but only if Oregon can win at Utah, beat USC at home, and finally, Dan Lanning, get over the hump in a rivalry game and beat Oregon State on November 24th. There's no way around it. Steven, let's play some Punch It Audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, we got an update on Thursday Night Football. Ian Rappaport saying Trevor Lawrence likely to play tonight. He wants to go. He's got a knee sprain. Here's Rappaport on Trevor Lawrence. Punch it. Trevor Lawrence, the biggest question mark heading into this big-time game tonight. Trevor Lawrence officially listed as questionable dealing with what was described to me as a pretty slight knee sprain. Now, teams before, as you guys know, Thursday night, don't really practice. They do more walkthroughs, but C.J. Beathard, the backup, did get most of the reps during the walkthrough. However, there is, from my understanding, some confidence that Trevor Lawrence will still be able to go. In fact, don't just take my word for it. That's literally what Trevor Lawrence said. He said he is confident that he will be able to get out there. Just want to make sure before the game that he's moving okay, not in as much pain, just can really get the job done. Cameron Wolf uh, from the NFL Network also reporting just uh, 20 minutes ago that Doug Peterson told him that Trevor Lawrence will start. He did his 20-minute pregame workout, showed good lateral movement. He will be on the field for the Jaguars tonight. As, uh, you know, and, and that's good because, you know, my Thursday night football, Jaguars, Saints tonight, I want everybody skating at full strength, so to speak. Four and two Jags, three and three Saints. You'll hear it right here on 750thegame.com. Who do you got in that game? Give me the Jags. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, I think he's going to play from all reports he's playing, and you know, it seems like he wants to. So I think as long as Trevor Lawrence plays, give me the Jags. I don't trust uh, Dennis Allen or Derek Carr at all. So Jags all the way. Final 8.8 seconds of the WNBA Finals. Las Vegas Aces against the New York Liberty. Aces trying to uh, win back-to-back championships. Here's how it sounded. Punch Here we go. It has good inbound. Trying to get it to Stewart. Dumps it in. Stewart juggles. Catches. Six seconds left. Stewart with five. Draws the double. Laney to the corner. Anders loose. No! And that is it! An unforgettable finish to game four. A resilient conclusion to a remarkable season for the Las Vegas Aces. And for the first time in 21 years, the WNBA has a back-to-back champion. The Aces on top yet again. Aces 70, Liberty 69, game four. Aces win the series three games to one. Becky Hammond said this one was sweeter because it was harder to do. Sabrina Yudescu was not at her best. Fourth quarter timeout, Holly Rowe, ESPN, sideline reporter, was reporting that Sabrina was vomiting in a trash can. Here's that report. You, you talk about nerves at a finals moment. Sabrina Yudescu, who just hit a big three and then came over the sideline and lost the contents of her stomach. She told me that she gets nervous before games, but she went right back out, wiped up her chin, and kept on playing. Do you think it was nerves, 
Steven, I have to think she wasn't, she just was under the weather. Yeah, I feel like mid-game, like that's that's not nerves, that's something uh, coming up on you. I mean, maybe before the game, it would be nerves, but no. During the game, no, that's, that's something else. Portland gets a WNBA franchise first move. You hire Kelly Graves as the coach. You trade for Sabrina Ionescu, and that's how you start your franchise. Everybody in? Yeah, I think everybody uh, in the state of Oregon would be in on that one. Meanwhile, Michigan being investigated by the NCAA for sign stealing. This is interesting. Punch it. I think the key thing about this investigation is the separation between legal sign stealing, which happens every week in high school, college, and NFL uh, stadiums around the country, and what's being alleged here, which is an illicit sign stealing, whether that's sign stealing from opposition stadiums going into stadiums of future opponents and stealing their signs, whether that's using videotape. Uh, The NCAA and the Big Ten did not release specifics, but there's a clear line of delineation when you have the school confirming an investigation and the Big Ten conference saying that one of its linchpin members is under investigation, that this has been raised to a serious level. And quite frankly, it's bad news for Jim Harbour right now, who's already under NCAA investigation. Um, This is a lot more than a cheeseburger. This This cuts to the core of competition. And the fact that it's been raised to this level and the Big Ten itself has publicized it, really brings this to a serious concern at a time when Jim Harbaugh has a national title contender on the field. Yes, uh, this is distraction. A second NCAA investigation this season. Yahoo Sports had the first report. And basically this is off-campus and in-person scouting of future opponents. Now, some of the Michigan opponents... Uh, have been bellyaching about this. And, uh, you know, even Michigan this week, you know, they're planning to play a game, and there was some thought, like, will their opponent play them this week? And, you know, you have Michigan set to play at Michigan State on Saturday. And Michigan State, you know, said they they had to think about whether or not they wanted to play the game. This is not good. I want to go back, though, to September 23rd. Rutgers lost 31-7 to to Michigan. Greg Schiano, the coach at Rutgers, gave a really strange halftime interview that now seems to make sense. Listen to this. Coach, four penalties for your team in the first half. Some that cost you. How do you clean that up in the second half? Well, there's some stuff going on out there, so we just got to slow it down a little bit. There's some things going on that aren't right as well, so we'll talk about how to handle it. This Michigan defense keeping Gavin Wimsett in this passing game in check. How do you adjust? Well, just got to keep playing. In the game, we just got to keep playing. All right, thanks, Coach. Now, tell me if I'm wrong, Stephen. Does it it sound to you like Greg Schiano knew at the time that something wasn't right on the field and Michigan was stealing their signs? Yeah, it certainly seemed like he knew something. Uh, You know, it seemed like there was a little bit of a hint that something was going on. The, The question for me, John, is like, Michigan's really good. Do they really need to be going in and stealing Rutgers signs like in a in a you know a legal a bad or a, an illegal way? Like I feel like they shouldn't have to do that if you're Michigan. But anything to get a leg up, yeah. Probably look, probably looking for every angle they could possibly get. I mean, did the Astros need to steal signs and bang on trash cans? Probably not. I mean, they were really good too. You know, but did it's, Barry it's Bonds? Rutgers, Barry it's, Bonds it's need Rutgers. to do the the cream and the clear? You know, he was going to hit home runs no matter what. I mean, I just think. It's another example of an entity losing its way, if this is true. Bill Belichick and the Patriots, Spygate, Deflategate. If 
you're not cheating, you're not trying. I mean, that it, it just raises so many debates. It's so, such a bad look for Jim Harbaugh. It is, and to me, that's the other question for me is, is Harbaugh going to be out at Michigan at some point? I feel like he's been there longer than I thought he would be, right? Like, he's always kind of worn out his welcome wherever he's been. Is there a point soon where Harbaugh is either coaching back in the NFL or coaching somewhere else? I don't know because it, I think this season's really pivotal for him because if Michigan makes the playoff, if Michigan wins a national championship, I think it's a different conversation because I think the winning will probably uh, you know, have people blind to what's going on. It's, uh, but it's not new. I mean, there there were coaches stealing signs, you know, back in the day when Chip Kelly was doing a lot of sideline signaling, and you know, Chip Kelly came up with those placards that had the pictures on them. We found out later the placards meant nothing; they, they were just signs that were held up. And uh, I don't know. It's Do you just, think it's gamesmanship? So just gamesmanship right here, or I, is this cross the line? It's cross the line. If if they are using, if they're breaking the rules and they're advanced scouting and they're videotaping teams' signals and stealing them, and then using that on game day, like there've been, there are teams that are saying, I guess, complaining to the NCAA that Michigan knows what's coming, and that's not right. Just play the damn game. Play the game. Jake Dicker, Washington State coach, opened his team shows up to play on Saturday at Autzen Stadium. Oregon, a big favorite at home. Against Washington State. Very emotional week last week. Will the Ducks show up a little flat? The Ducks are favored by 20 and a half. Here's Jake Dickert talking about what he needs this week from his team. Punch it. Well, I think it's it's been good, but we're always fighting for consistency. I thought Monday we really locked in and focused. I thought Tuesday we had one of our best practices of the year. Today you introduce crowd noise, you know, kind of Wednesday, a little colder. We gotta we gotta maintain a standard. And that's what I said right here. Right? Average can't be part of anything that you do. And you got to crave accountability to it. So the guy next to you isn't living to the standard. We got to call it out. And I think that was big. I thought we had a good uh, finish, though. Offense did a good job with the crowd noise. We're, we're preparing for everything to make sure that we're ready to execute. Washington State has not looked right in the last two weeks. They started the season 4-0. They were ranked. They were a great story. Something not right with Washington State. I'm going to be looking closely at the Cougars on Saturday. I think Oregon wins the game. I think Oregon covers the 20 and a half points. And, I, you know, you had asked me that th- three weeks ago. I would have said this is going to be a hell of a game. I don't see it right now. They, Washington State has just not played well. I think they will make a concerted effort to slow the game down. I think they're going to try to run Nakia Watson a whole bunch. But I, they may be it over their heads in this one. Scoot Henderson, Blazers first-round draft pick. He was asked what he's learned about the NBA through one preseason. Here's Scoot. Punch it. Well, I kind of knew like a little bit everything, such as like guys hit contested shots. Like guys are obviously good in the league and they hit shots uh, heavily contested all the time. But you know, that's one of those things where it's like when you actually see it in person, it's like, okay, uh, you might have to do a little, a little something better to, to try to uh, deflect the pass or deflect the shot or something. So. Scoot says the contested shot making. You know what? I've always marveled at that myself. Steven, that's the thing that I find that is amazing about the NBA. Is that you you talk about high school basketball or even college basketball. Good defenders getting a hand in someone's face can make a big difference. In the NBA, good defenders getting a hand in someone's face can still, you know, end up with uh, the opposing team shooting well. Like, the shooting is 
is obviously next level. Yeah, these guys in the NBA are so skilled. Uh, you know, when I was with the Blazers in their scouting department, that was a big thing is the contest. It wasn't even about, you know, it, it wasn't about the defensive rotations. It was can they get a hand up. And, you know, I would do a lot of live tracking of in-game, of uh, just how many contests the Blazers would actually get throughout the game. So, yeah, contests are a huge thing when it comes to the NBA. And Scoot's right. It's like there's a lot of times when you play really good defense, you stay in front of your guy, you get your hand up and have a great contest, and it doesn't matter because, you know, you're going against Kevin Durant, who's six foot ten, and can just jump over you and make that shot. So, yeah, it's just one of those things. It's effort, but contesting is so let me hard ask to you, do. What, what were you looking for? What was the team looking for when they were having you kind of – track that in live action but what yeah. did they want to what did they what were they trying to learn yeah they're just kind of trying to learn like the percentage of good contests compared to bad contests because there's you know the way that they had it there was i believe there was like nine different contests that they had and so i had to decipher which was which and only two of them were the ones that they really wanted so like give me an idea of what those two were like, uh, uh so it was called a full contest so that's like basically a block shot or like you have your hand above the ball and you make the guy you know move the ball changes changes shot. shot the other one yeah. was a ball contest where it's slightly less than a full contest but you have your hand up whether it's in the guy's face like covering their eyes that they do that or it's right up next to the ball as he's shooting it. Interesting. Did you see any trends that, that developed with how to defend certain players or guys that would not shoot as well when, uh, you know, I always wondered, like, what would happen if, a, you know, a player just kind of accidentally hit a guy in the throat while he was taking a shot? Well, and then the foul. next time, then it would be a foul, yeah. But then the next time, does the guy, uh, does the guy shoot well? Or is he worried about his throat? Um, I did not see any trends like that, but yeah, you you do <laughs> you do end up seeing trends of just like certain players how they contest shots and how different they are, and then you learned a lot about just like players, especially guarding the pick and roll. I mean, there there's so many little nuanced things that go on in the pick and roll defense mm. that people don't realize, and makes it so much harder to do in the NBA. So you, those are the two things I really took away. From. Well, those guys that are doing it are lethal, and you can't put a hand on them. And right. It's a foul. You can't touch them, and you have to, like, guard two players at one time. It's basically impossible. Steven, good stuff there. That's Punch It Audio. Anna's popping in the studio. Five at five, still ahead. we got a lot to talk about in a big college football weekend. Coming up, we'll play Fun Fact or Nah. Anna went to court today. I'm dying to know how it went. Uh, Steven, aren't you dying to know? Like, did you bring an expert witness? How did it go? Well, especially after your story yesterday about how well you did in court. <laughs> does it does it stay in the family? Is the family now great in court because of uh, you? She uh, When she was leaving the house today, she was wearing all white. Why were you wearing a white coat? Uh, because <laughs> it's subliminal. <laughs> you know, I'm white. innocent. I'm innocent. You look like Mr. Rourke from yeah. Fantasy Island. Yes. The plane, the plane. Yeah, you don't want to wear, like, as a, as a criminal defendant, uh, you don't want to be wearing black. You don't want to be wearing red. Anything. But you were, you weren't facing, just to be clear, you weren't facing criminal charges today. <laughs> no. You were in a traffic court because a, yeah. you were speeding. How how fast were you accused of going? I was like, what, 40, 43 and a 30? 43 and Fair. a 30. Yeah. That's egregious. <laughs> wow. I don't know if I feel safe in a car with uh, you. Thanks. So you uh, you left the house today. Yeah. And then I noticed, I was working, I noticed... You came back really fast. Yeah, I did. What happened? Well, I went to go check in with the court clerk, and she's flipping through all the cases on the docket. She says, well, we don't, we don't have you down to appear today. 
and uh, we quickly figured out that I already paid the fine. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> so wait a minute. When you pay the fine, you're you're admitting you're, you're filing a plea no, of no contest. No contest. Yes. But you're paying the fine. See, so you you so wait, you can't go into court and say I'm not guilty after you've already said I'm guilty. <laughs> what are you doing? Well, it's just further evidence that I'm slowly losing my mind. Um, and I and it's the funniest thing because I did ask the clerk. I said, "Well, oh, oh you're yeah, I I guess I did pay that um, a few days ago or a few weeks ago, whatever it was." Could I withdraw that? Because now I'm here and I want to fight the Your ticket. Honor? And she looked at me like I was insane. Your Honor, are there take backs? Oh, no take backs? <laughs> Never mind what I said the other day. You know? Oh, <laughs> I'm not guilty. Just, you know, it's just an act of sheer brilliance over here. Well, I give you, it takes a lot of chutzpah yeah. to go in there and say, uh, I'm guilty. Oh, wait a minute, I'm not guilty. You know? <laughs> I changed my mind. Well, here. So, Stephen, that's how it went. If it doesn't fit, you're... you must acquit. Oh, my gosh. No. What were you going to do? Did you have a... I really didn't Did know. Did you have a plan? My plan was just to say that um, I I have a good driving record, uh, that I am a careful driver. You know, I we have children. I, I drive them around all the time. We, it happened to be... I think that the... Ticket happened like near a school, and so I was like, I wanted to be like, well, you know, I I'm very cognizant about driving around school. Were you ever at any point going to say I was not speeding? I don't know. I didn't. Well, I didn't well, know you how can't I get. You can't. You, you, you can't lie under oath. But you. I know. Were you speeding? I don't. I didn't think that I was. That's Allegedly. Like it. It was one of those things where I got pulled over and I really, genuinely was surprised. Like, what? No way. What did the officer say? Because the, I, these officers, when they pull people over these oh, days. Oh, he, he was, it was very carefully worded. He pulled over and he said, is there some reason that you were in such a hurry today? Ooh. He's asking you to admit your guilt. Yes, creatively. And I was like, oh, no, I'm not in a hurry. So, and I, and I really wasn't. Did you ask to talk to an attorney right away? I need my attorney. <laughs> one in my Miranda just, I'm just glad you weren't one of these drivers that we see on social media who's like, I won't roll my window down. I know my rights. Oh. You know, like, you know those, pe- those nutbags? No. Are, are there yeah. people who won't roll they their won't, window down? And then they get arrested and go to yes. jail for it? Yeah. There's a oh. whole class of people that... Yeah. Give the officers such a bad time yeah. that they escalate a simple seating ticket into like a oh. disorderly conduct, and you know they're on the ground getting arrested. Well, obviously, there's been a lot of feelings, right, about law the, enforcement in the, the last I think, three or four years. I, I actually look. I'm going to say this. I have love for law enforcement officers. I think the vast majority of law enforcement officers are good people who are fighting the good fight, doing, and I think there's a few bad apples out there that have ruined it it in part for them yeah for the good officers who are out there just doing the job like this yeah. guy's pulling you over he's just trying to keep kids at a school safe and you're flying by like at 43 miles an hour and he he <laughs> says hey this lady i need to slow this lady down <laughs> allegedly the thing i've learned is anna is just not a criminal mastermind after this whole thing she <laughs> is not a criminal mastermind, which is a good thing it's a good thing yeah. that's a positive darn it yeah you can't darn you can't pull it, it off bad. no
Too uh, bad. You didn't have a good case. I, I'm I actually with you. you because I, I, you know, having worked in television news, uh, we worked with law enforcement all the time. And I saw firsthand, like, so much of a police officer's job, whether it's a police officer or a county sheriff, I mean, that's they're a social worker. The things that they have to deal with and come across on a daily basis, the majority of their day is just spent helping people who are truly in need. On that note, we're going to help some people feel better about the day. I want to play a fun game. We need to get Greg's to do a little benchmark for this. A fun game that I like to call Fun Fact or Not. And the Pac-12 research team has put together 12 fun facts. And it'll be up to the three of us to determine by a vote if the fact is indeed fun or not. You ready? Ready. Arizona. Arizona beat Washington State 44-6 to on Saturday. Washington State was ranked 19th entering the game. It was tied for the largest margin of victory against a ranked opponent in program history. In 2005, they beat number 7 UCLA also by 38. Fun fact or not? I'm going to go, uh, I'll say fun. I'll be positive at the start. It's a fun fact. Uh, big big win. And it was something that we weren't expecting. I think that's more of it. We weren't expecting that big win. So, yeah, I'll go fun. Uh, I'll say not nah, just because you threw too much at me there. It, was, it yeah. was way too much. I say not nah as well. I like that Steven is trying to pace his negativity <laughs> in this segment. Thank you. But... I think it's a little wordy and a little convoluted. I, you know, they they beat number nine. There's too many numbers. Yeah, number that's what nineteen it is. Washington State forty four to six. They also beat number seven UCLA by thirty eight in two thousand five. Yeah. It's too many numbers. Yeah, that many numbers not fun. Mm-hmm. Eh. Arizona State fun fact or not? Nah, they are one in five for the first time since nineteen forty two. Ooh, uh, I mean. It's kind of funny. Funny? It's fun. I think it's fun. <laughs> I think that's a great it's kind fact. Of, kind of sad. It surprised me. 1942 is a long time that's ago. a long time. And so that makes a good fact. This isn't like, hey, this is the one in five since last year. No. Since 1942, this is their worst start, one in five. Yeah, it's it's not a fun fact. It's a sad fact. But yeah, I'll go, I'll go but, fun. But I, but I think we're convoluting fun, like... Mm. You know, the fact is fun. It the is. fact it that they're one it and is. five isn't fun. Yeah, that's true. That's a good, it's a fun fact. Okay. Sweet. Cal. We should have like a ding. Ding. That's a fun mm-hmm. fact. Yeah. Cal, after last week's loss to Utah, Cal is one and 20 on the road against ranked teams in the Pac-12 era. Ooh. Fun fact or not? Kind of in the same category of fun because it's interesting and, wow, way worse than I thought it would be. Cal on the road against ranked teams, 1-20. and 20. Yeah, that's – I'm with Anna. I would expect it to be better than that. So, yeah, I'll go fun fact because I, I always think Wilcox pulls off some upsets, but maybe he doesn't. Not against ranked teams in the Pac-12, apparently, and not on the road. So uh, that that falls in line, too, with our, with our home favorites being lethal mm-hmm. in the conference. Uh, there it is. All right, that is a fun fact. Colorado blew a 29-point lead against Stanford on Friday. It is the largest blown lead in program history. Never before had they given up a bigger lead. Yeah. All all three of these are in the same category of, like, Bad not, news. Not great for the team itself. But, but really fun for but us. kind of fun for us. <laughs> I'm going nah on this one. I'm going nah. Really? I feel like this is a, this is just trying to you know bang down Deion Sanders. Mm. 
They're trying to go yeah. after him. Um, you know, the, the better fact, I thought, was it was the fourth largest margin of victory overcome in the Pac-12's history. 29 points. Mm-hmm. So, so like the same fact, but flipped the other yeah, way. Yeah, flip it the other way. Nice. Make it a positive instead of a negative. <laughs> Why so negative, Greg? Um, all right. Greg. He, he was mad that you came up with stats last week. <laughs> no, Oregon. Oregon. This is a fun fact. Oregon is the only team in college football that has yet to create, has yet to commit multiple turnovers in a game. They've never had more than one turnover in a game. They're the only team in college football that has done what? Super fun. Wait, I I, agree. Defensively, they haven't caused two turnovers. Have committed multiple turnovers. Okay. Yeah. No, that's fun. Yeah. That that offense is great. I'll go fun. They've thrown a pick. They've had a fumble. They haven't had multiple turnovers in the same game. Does that come back to haunt them at some point? I don't think so. I think that's, you know, sometimes a little bit of that is luck. I mean, because sometimes there's just a turnover where guy, helmet comes flying in, hits the ball, ball pops out. There's just nothing you can do about it. So there's a little bit of luck in involved in turnovers in the end. But I think the bigger trend tells you a lot about your team, your ball carrier, carrying habits, and your quarterback. It has a yeah. lot to do with Bo Nix. Yeah. The fact that he doesn't make bad throws he just doesn't commit a turnover that'll kill you like forgive me but a few years back this was not the case like oregon was making those kind of mistakes more frequently right Uh, and not only that but um you know it just depends who's playing quarterback a lot a lot of this yeah and i think bo nix has been very good at at Mm -hmm. taking care of the ball yeah uh oregon state oregon state is bowl eligible for the third straight season and uh is bowl eligible for the earliest time, earliest date in program history. So they have six wins on the calendar earlier than at any other juncture of their history. Does that make sense to you? It makes it, sense, and it's uh, not fun to me at all. Not why? Why fun. is that not fun? I feel like Greg was really stretching. They've there been on. For... They've been six and one before. They have been six and one so before, like, but just because the day, the day the is day, earlier, it's er, the earliest in program history that they got to six. Hot take: but, that might be one of the worst fun facts he's come out wow. with this year. Sorry, Greg. Sorry, Greg. Uh, Stanford. Let's go to there. Stanford. <laughs> this is the fact Greg gives us for Stanford: fourth largest comeback in Pac-12 history. Twenty-nine points. I feel like I heard that Colorado. already. Uh. Lazy fact. Hmm. <laughs> he just flipped it. <laughs> Yeah, you, you said the exact, that's the one you wanted to give for that's Colorado. That's what I wanted for Colorado, and he used it for Stanford. I get why he did it. Uh, so I thought it was fun back in the Colorado, you know, so I'm going I'm to have to say it is fun. Not fun for Stanford, fun for Colorado stats. <laughs> Wrong team, but fun, you know. UCLA, fun fact or not, the Bruins have committed at least one turnover in every game this season Mm. fun fact or no i mean yeah i think it's fun but but i like it's fun for me to root against ucla for some reason they also have had multiple turnovers (laughs) in five of their six games see i think i think that's more fun than just one turnover in each game yeah yeah it says it says a lot about their quarterback dante moore he's a true freshman he does not take care of the ball he makes Mm -hmm. a dumb play here dumb play there at a pick six against oregon state and i think it really speaks to quarterback play wait so steven did you think that was fun uh i go no i go nah 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 bro i think i actually think it is fun so i'm gonna go yes and what did you say anna i said fun all right it's fun then 
All right, USC. USC under Lincoln Riley is 11 and 0 at home. But this is the first ranked conference opponent that he will face at home. So he's 11 and 0 playing cupcakes. Now he gets a ranked conference opponent at home for the first time. Is that fun or no? No. That's a, that's a no for me. <laughs> why? I, I don't like know. You're why, lifting why, something. Why is that? Why would I don't understand why that's fun at all? Just it doesn't. He's eleven zero at home, but he hasn't played anybody. Yeah, so now they're playing somebody. But, that, but that's about to change this weekend. They're playing Utah. I think that's really fun. It makes me more interested in the game. I'm gonna say no. <laughs> Boring. Yeah, it's just, uh, I, it's just man. I don't. Utah. <laughs> oh, my side hurts. Utah. Here it is. Did you ever just laugh wrong? All right. This is an interesting uh, one. Greg dug deep for this one. The Utes of Utah are number one in the Pac-12 in time of possession. And they are third in all of college football in time of possession. They are possessing the ball more than anybody. 34 minutes and 17 seconds per game. Fun fact or not? Nah? Yeah, I'm going to go fun on that one. Uh, that's definitely fun. Because their matchup against the USC, they're going to probably uh, you know take the air out of the ball. So, yeah, fun. I don't see anything fun about that. That's boring to me. They're going to run. It's they real got football the ball. The clock's going to be moving. They're going to shorten the game. They're going to try to keep USC off the field. Not for me. I'll say, nah. Uh, that's the, all you got? They Time of possession. Coaches say all the time, time of possession doesn't matter. So Greg is telling us it does? Let's go to Washington. Greg. Here's Washington. <laughs> I, by the way, I asked Greg to come on the show. We say Greg like Newman. I, I asked Greg to come on the show. Greg was all about it, and the Pac-12 shot it down. Oh. They don't want him speaking out about these facts. Okay, here we go. Washington. Just the facts, Greg. Just the facts. Washington. Washington has the highest AP ranking since 2017. They are number five. Fun fact or not? Nah? What? Nah, that's that, that's, that's lazy. Lame. <laughs> Lame, Greg. Poor Greg isn't even allowed to come on here and defend himself. Boo. <laughs> but, yeah, Greg, you really needed to bring it more on that one. Come on, Greg. <laughs> Throw us a bone over here. All right, Washington State. Washington State is 2-0 and against ranked opponents this season. They have never been 3-0 and against ranked opponents in a season. In their program history, hmm. they are trying to. If they beat Washington, yeah, they will be three and zero against ranked opponents. They've never started a season three and zero against ranked opponents. Fun fact or not? Uh, uh, I go. I go fun because uh, Washington State they were good and now they're just not good. So it's kind of weird that they are two and zero against ranked opponents this season. Like I feel like they have no chance to beat Oregon yeah. this week, and that's what they're going for. So yeah, I'll go fun. Yeah, and think about it. They beat Wisconsin at home. And they beat Oregon State at home. The difference here is they are on the road. I like it. I think it's a fun fact because it gives me a little more intrigue into Saturday's game, and I had kind of given up some of the intrigue. I think Oregon's going to win the game pretty easily. Yeah. But now I'm interested. All right, all right, trying to win third game against a ranked team. Yeah, I don't think it's fun because I don't <laughs> think there's a chance they're going to beat Oregon, so it's kind of moot. Well, right. maybe, maybe, they, yeah. maybe they are, though, because the, think about the competition they've played. They've played really good yeah. competition. Had, Oregon has played one tough game all season. They're not going to beat Oregon. You know how they, they send me this on a Google Doc that they have access for? 
And there's a button that says request edit access. And Greg and the Pac-12 are all both on there. I'm dying to push that button and change some of his facts and just see how he reacts to it. <laughs> we want to edit some of your facts, Greg. Do you send us, You need to send these segments to Greg. Oh, I, I, I suspect no, he's listening. Send, don't send these to gonna Greg. Ruin his confidence. We don't want him listening to this. going to ruin Greg's confidence. All right, coming up, uh, Anna's got the 5 at 5, top of the hour, plus a whole bunch more. Anna's uh, getting ready for the 5 at 5. we got a whole bunch of stuff to get to before that, though. This will be... Uh, this will be jam-packed. Mark is in Beaverton. He, uh, Anna, he's called in to defend you. Okay? Oh, on what? Uh, on your faux pas. Mark, welcome. <laughs> so many possibilities. Welcome, Mark. I'll, I'll, I'll give you about 20, 20, 30 minutes here if you want to go ahead. Oh, the minutes? Wow. No, no, I'm not going to hijack your show that much. No, Anna, I mean, my wife and I were your biggest fans, and I just felt compelled to come and defend you because... I love, we love how you always give John a bad time when, when he does a faux pas, mm-hmm. and you do, like, one in a, in a millennium, and mm-hmm. so this is your one, but yet, I'm sure you're going to hear about it from John for the next oh, yeah. Come on. 15 years. Come so, on. <laughs> hey. That's why we felt compelled, because <laughs> my wife just got a ticket also, and I, oh. I don't know if she did what you did, but I wouldn't put it past her. Solidarity. Solidarity. Uh, well, you know, that's marriage. The marriage is basically just collecting incidents like this that you get to bring up to your partner and just relive for the rest of your lives together, right? You, uh, you know, <laughs> you, you, you get, you've had a couple of tickets in how many years? I don't know. About five, six years? No, no, it's not that short a time span. Oh, really? Really? I don't. I get warnings. I don't I get. Know. I don't get tickets. I don't know how it is that you get people like me, Anna. People like me. Get to know me, okay? <laughs> get to know me. They, you know, I I'm respectful to the officer. I'm respectful when they come to up the to the officer. window. Uh, it often starts with some banter about a sports team. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Such crap. No, then they they go. Hey, uh, what do you think about the Blazers this year? <laughs> that's how the conversation starts. Yeah. No, I, I actually don't. I don't do a lot of driving other than the driving that I do to the, that's true. To, the to the stadiums. You're pretty homebound. I'm not right really driving. <laughs> I'm. That's the other thing. I don't get. I don't get a lot of reps. So I don't. I don't think I'm in a position to get a ticket. They'd have to knock on the door. For any, know? for anyone who works at home, you can relate. You and I went to go run an errand the other day that was about a mile and a half, maybe two, away from our house, and it was a beautiful day like today. And you turn to me and you go. This is kind of exciting. This is kind of the outer boundary of where I get to go during the course of the day. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I felt like one of kind of sad. I feel like I'm living in one of those sci-fi movies sometimes, because especially in the last 14 months with the Pac-12 stuff going on, I, I've been afraid at some days to venture far from the house right. because. The Pac-12 could implode or the phone's going to rig. So I'll carry my laptop with me. I'll bring the phone, whatever, if I have to go out. Yeah. And and uh, I even did that today. I had my laptop with me. I had uh-huh. my phone with me. You're I was just... going to the gym, but I was just like, you know what? I'm going to bring this in just yeah. in case something happens. And and But I feel like I'm in one of those sci-fi movies where the people who all live in the community don't know why they go beyond the wall. You know what I mean? 
You've seen those movies? Why they don't go yeah. beyond the wall? There's a wall, and yeah. then it's all known they're not supposed to go beyond the wall, yeah. but nobody knows why. Yeah. But you were just told that by right. somebody. Like maze runner. So when I'm driving, I kind of hit a boundary. Yeah. It's a mile and a half from the house, and I go, this is new ground out here. Yeah, I feel like I'm venturing <laughs> beyond the dome. Am I too far? Can I get back? <laughs> Will I be able to breathe? Um, no, I, so I think some of it is the pandemic, but I think some of it is, you know, the radio show is 3 to 6 p.m., and, and so I'm prepping for that. I'm writing in the mornings and writing a column, and so... This four, last 14 months with the Pac-12 stuff, yeah. there's been a lot of days where I'm like, I'm not going anywhere today. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know how healthy that is, but... It's not. Like, tomorrow yeah, morning... I can tell you it's not. Here's a good one for you. It's like, tomorrow morning at 8.30 in the morning, John Wilner and I are interviewing Chip Kelly for our podcast. That'll be good. At 8.30, though? I don't know. Wake up. That's going to be my first question. Why are we talking at 8.30? <laughs> Why not a normal hour? Don't you know it's rude... To have these conversations before nine, we'll do all that with uh, with Chip Kelly. What else should I ask Chip Kelly? What are you interested in knowing about Chip Kelly, Stephen? You got anything for Chip Kelly? Should I ask him? I'll play part of the interview on tomorrow's show. Well, I want to know: Is Dante Moore really the best quarterback on his roster right now? Mm. Like, okay. I, I understand like you need to play him because he's a high recruit and everything. And there's there's a lot of things about his recruitment that was like. He just wants to go where he can play, but he's been really bad, and I don't know that he's the best quarterback on that team. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anna, you got one for Chip? Chipper? Um, I want to know how much, and he probably won't answer this, though, how much he's already thinking about the travel and the toll that it's going to take on the players mm-hmm. once they jump conferences next year, and I want to know if he's still serving his players um, grass-fed filet mignons for dinner. Okay. Grass-fed. Mm-hmm. Writing that down. Yeah. Okay. I'll ask him those questions and more. And we'll play uh, that chunk of the interview on tomorrow's show. How about that? Coming up, we'll have the 5 at 5. It's the not necessarily the biggest stories going on in the world, but Anna picked them anyway. Yeah. That's how we're billing it. Mm, totally. Uh, if you missed the news today, Terry Stotts, former Blazers assistant, was uh, set to be a Milwaukee Bucks assistant coach this year. Then the Bucks traded for Damian Lillard. Stotts left the team today, quit the job, walked away. A lot of speculation about that possibly being about the uh, relationship with Stotts and Lillard maybe not being as cozy as everybody thought. Uh, we can talk about that coming up uh, did, in the 5 o'clock hour. Did you well. also see Neil O'Shea where he landed? I, hmm. He well, got a, Neil, O'Shea, Neil O'Shea got a job. Terry Stotts left his job. Yeah. Wow. Well, he's with the Sixers as a consultant so he's trying to start back over it probably means that his blazers contract is up finally so neil o'shea out there working terry stott's going eh, i don't i'm throwing in the towel i don't need it uh i don't want to do this anymore so we'll uh we'll try to dig deeper on that front leave it here you want to read me now you can read me exclusively at johnconzano.com i've got my picks for the week up and online working on something fun for tomorrow Appreciate everybody who uh, subscribes. Get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. Whatever works for you works for me. If you want to read my writing in real time, delivered to your email inbox, read at your leisure. You won't miss a thing. Go to johnconzano.com. Anna is here for the 5 at 5. We've got Thursday night football coming up. It'll be Trevor Lawrence at quarterback and the Jacksonville Jaguars. Is it Jaguars or Jaguar? What is that, Anna? 
it just depends on how fancy you want to say. Jaguar. Is it a chimpanzee or a chimpanzee? <laughs> I think you're answering your own question. Uh, Jags are uh, plus two and a half on the road in New Orleans. Steven, you have a you have a lean on that one? Yeah, I'm going uh, Jags plus 120 on the money line. Don't, I don't even need the points. No points. Even, no points. You think they win? Win outright. You like them. Why do you like them? I just, just I like feel? I, I like the quarterback coach combo better than I like the Saints quarterback coach combo. And usually mm. that when it comes down to you know these type of uh, standalone games, that's what I go with. He's going with it. Anna, are you ready? Yeah. Heard you muttering and mumbling about your five at five. <laughs> Let's see what you got. Let's see. The five at five. What you got? I want to know your thoughts about this because I, I he's just come on my radar in the last year or so. Okay. And I don't know what to make of him. So, Jimmy Garoppolo, Raiders quarterback, has been ruled out for this Sunday's game against the Chicago Bears. He apparently sustained a back injury in the Raiders' win over the Patriots last week. Uh, He was taken by ambulance from Allegiant Stadium to a local hospital. But so far, the coach says they've dodged a bullet. So, maybe he's not out for the season. Apparently, the injury could have been worse. Hmm. They're not saying yet, though, uh, when he'll be back. Um, either Brian Hoyer or rookie Aiden O'Connell will start in his place this Sunday. Um, this is a guy, whether it's an ankle injury or he had some broken bones, or it's a hand, it's a shoulder, it's back. I'd start to wonder at some point how much of this is Jimmy Garoppolo. I, and I'm not saying he's necessarily injury-prone, although he's had some injuries. Mm-hmm. I just kind of wonder if his game isn't conducive to the, you know, to the hits that he's taking. And the way, you know, it's maybe it's the way he plays. Mm-hmm. He's not really a scrambler. Tries to be more of a pocket guy, but he's not as durable as some of those other guys that will stand in there and take shots. But then every time you say that about him, he plays really well in a game. So he's one of these players that, like if he was an actor, he would occasionally give you just a great performance. Just enough for you to go, I I think he actually could be a leading man. But then most of the rest of the time, he acts like a supporting actor. He's not a leading man. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Steven, is that a good metaphor for Jimmy G? Yeah, he, he shows glimpses of like, yeah, I think we can do it with this guy. But then when it comes down to it, we've uh, we've seen the examples and we've seen the performance. There's like, and it's not it's not a small sample size. It's a large sample size with Jimmy G now. And I think we can all agree, like, he's just not the guy you build your team around. Raiders still trying to do it. And you had me when you said he went to the hospital in an ambulance, but he's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, a little bit dramatic. Number two. Okay. Um, This story caught my eye. Michigan State uh, apparently considered skipping the Michigan game this weekend. Right. Michigan. Sign stealing. It has a sign stealing investigation being conducted by the NCAA. So it's curious to me that Michigan State had approached the Big Ten to say it was considering not playing in the game this weekend, citing concern over the health and safety of its players. Uh, because they got a heads up that, hey, we're looking into sign stealing by Michigan. Pete Thamel, ESPN, had uh, the details on the 
sign stealing. I think the key thing about this investigation is the separation between legal sign stealing, which happens every week in high school, college, and NFL uh, stadiums around the country, and what's being alleged here, which is an illicit sign stealing, whether that's sign stealing from opposition stadiums going into stadiums of future opponents and stealing their signs, whether that's using videotape. The NCAA and the Big Ten did not release specifics, but there's a clear line of delineation when you have the school confirming an investigation and the Big Ten conference saying that one of its linchpin members is under investigation, that this has been raised to a serious level. And quite frankly, it's bad news for Jim Harbaugh right now. He's already- there it is, Jim Harbaugh, bad news. But Michigan and Michigan State will play this weekend. Part of Michigan State not wanting to play, I can't help but think that a little bit of this is them being dramatic. And also they're 2-4, and four. their coach Mel Tucker... You know, he's been fired. He's now part of this uh, lawsuit and this investigation. And so, you know, Michigan State is saying that they're concerned about this. Well, they got they got bigger problems than sign stealing, you know. Got a coach who was, uh, you know, doing something on the phone he shouldn't have been doing. Number three. The Aces become the first team since 2002 to win back-to-back WNBA championships. They claim the title over the New York Liberty on Wednesday night. Uh, our favorite in Oregon, uh, Sabrina Ionesco, did regain momentum in the fourth quarter. It was close. She made a three-pointer to make it a two-point game, but ultimately uh, the Aces won out. Here we go. Ionesco to inbound. Trying to get it to Stewart. Dumps it in, Stewart juggles, catches, six seconds left. Stewart with five, draws the double, Laney to the corner, Vandersloot, no! And that is it! An unforgettable finish to game four! A resilient conclusion to a remarkable season for the Las Vegas Aces. And for the first time in 21 years, the WNBA has a back-to-back champion. The Aces on top yet again. There it's, that's how it sounded. Aces win. Sabrina Ionescu and the Aces, uh, uh, excuse me, and the New York Liberty falling by a point. I kind of got the feeling that if the Aces didn't get it in Game 4, they were going to get it in Game 5. 3-1 to one was the series. Mm-hmm. Number 4. Mary Lou Retton, did you hear what's going on with her? Yeah, so she's sad. had this rare form of pneumonia. She's been in the ICU in a Texas hospital fighting for her life. She had improved over the weekend and seemed to be heading in a positive direction, but then suffered another setback this week. She's 55 years old, and her family is saying that it's just pretty scary right now. Um, keep her in your thoughts. She's, uh, of course, the first American female gymnast to win gold in the Olympic all-around back in 84 Olympics in Los Angeles. And that gold was one of five medals. I didn't know that, that she won in those games. She was such the face of the 84 Summer Olympics. Mm-hmm. And that smile and, you know, uh, all the drama around gymnastics and... You know, she was like the all-American kid who was uh, paving the way for gymnasts that would come after her. Wheaties box, all of that. So, yeah, sad stuff for Mary Lou Retton, who is only 55 years old. Number five. This story I'm only doing because I get to say tush push legitimately. 
The NFL would discuss the tush-push play after this season. Uh, this is a play that the Eagles made famous this season right. because they've been really good at it. Jalen Hurts has been able to convert short yard situations with a simple QB sneak with an added push from two or three players lined up in the backfield. But I guess... It's like a rugby play. The executives are going to take a look at it after this season. Yeah. It, from, uh, by the way, from the year 2000 to the year 2022, in the first last 22 years, the league averaged 53 quarterback sneaks through six weeks a game per year. 53 was the number that they averaged. This year, through six weeks, that number's double. It's 104. That's the most in a 24-season time span, and, and it's the most ever since records have been kept. Everyone's pushing the tushes. Everyone's doing it, and third and fourth and two and shorter, it's become kind of an automatic. I'd like to see it go. I don't know how you regulate it. I don't think it's a. It's not a football play. It's a rugby play. You want to go away? I want to go away. I think it, it kind of ruins the game a little oh, bit. Like right. you shouldn't be able to aid the ball carrier by pushing them forward. You shouldn't be able to do that. That's a. That's not a football play. It's, you know, I don't. I don't have an access to Jim Thorpe and ask him right now. But I don't think they were doing it back in the day. I don't like it. Stephen, do you like the tush push or no? Uh, no, I don't. Kind of ruins it. Like, I like to see the quarterback try to get it on his own. There's something fun about that. Can you move the line of scrimmage? Can the quarterback find a crease? You know, it, when people are just shoving him, it's just like, who cares? Who has the ball in there, even? They're just kind of moving the pile. It's only been allowed in the NFL since 2005. So let's get rid of it. Get rid of the tush push. There you go. All right, it. coming up, Jaguars, Saints on Thursday Night Football. We're back tomorrow.